How far would you go in the name of your religious beliefs? Plenty of people have died. Others have killed in the name of their God. But would you be willing to sacrifice your mother? Your sisters? How about your daughters? Well, that's what we've got this week. Religious zealots who commit murder as an act of God. Enjoy. Oh, welcome, welcome, welcome into another exciting edition of Killing, Missing, Hidden. I'm your lovely host, Brad, former criminal defense attorney. Fortunately, I never had clients like the folks we're going to discuss this week. Shout out to listener Misty for this suggestion or direct your disgust to her because this is a dark one. It may not be very kid-friendly and may not be one that everybody wants to hear. Approach it with caution. In other words, we've got you know, killings and abuse of family members. So just be warned. Uh, Before we begin, I will warn that sadly, I have fallen into the need to start running ads on the podcast. I don't want to do it. I don't like podcasts with ads. I feel like I'm being a hypocrite, but some way, somehow I've got to offset some of these costs. So I think this is going to be our first one. We're trying it with the automatic ad insertion tool from Buzzsprout, which is my podcast host. Now, I didn't make this decision on my own. I spoke about it with the loyal members of our Facebook group, and well over 90% agreed that ads would be acceptable. So while it's not a decision that's warmly embraced by everybody, the vast, vast majority is okay with it. This is why you should join our Facebook group. All right, now with that being said, let's just jump into this journey of pure darkness. So our subjects this week are the Alexander family. They kind of came together in Dresden and then later moved to Hamburg, Germany. They were devout followers of this strange little religious sect. It looks like they were members of what was called the Lorber Society, which was a group founded by Jacob Lorber in the 1840s. This group focused on unflinching self-denial and trying to live a life where basically anything that made you smile would be avoided in an effort to show the Heavenly Father that you were fun enough to be invited into heaven. It was also one of these groups that preached that everybody who wasn't in the club was probably a minion of Satan. Orber wrote many books for his students, somewhere between 25 to 40 books and pamphlets and all. One of Lorber's most loyal and devoted followers was a fellow by the name of George Ryle, and he took former leadership of the group when Lorber died in 1864. Or, according to some sources, he kind of created his own congregation within the sect and took over and branched off on his own. Ryle was apparently young enough to lead this group for many, many, many years because he survived into the 1930s. And by that time, he had convinced himself that he was a prophet of God, kind of a um, new Jesus, if you will. When Ryle died... Harold Alexander 
had been his caretaker during those final years. He had become a follower of the sect, very involved with it, and he declared himself to be the new leader of the sect. We don't know whether or not this was Ryle's decision or whether Harold just took advantage of this opportunity, but it happened. Now, the sect kind of died away, according to historians, about 1970, which fits nicely with how this story about the Alexander family plays out. Now, know that there's kind of some conflict about this background information I just gave you. There's others who claim that they were not a member of the Lorber sect, but rather what was known as the Werber sect. Basically, it was the same thing, just with another name and different actors. There's a few who even argue that Harold created all this himself. They weren't a member of any formal sect. This was just the Alexander family values. Now, details are pretty inconsistent across the sources I found, but all are consistent in that the, the beliefs were extreme. Uh, now, when we talk about how they, you know, saw the world as us versus them, you know, we're the children of God, the world is in the hands of the devil. But they didn't kind of have that approach of, you know, turn the other cheek. It was, we're going to turn into wild barbarians and kill everything devilish in the world to the extent that we can. You know, that I get the impression that if, you went and blew up an office building because one person in there was a Satan worshiper, but you killed 999 innocent lives. To them, that would be totally justified. That's kind of the zealous insanity that we're talking about here. Okay. So that's kind of our background. It's out of the way. We're going to focus on the Alexander family. In 1954, Harold and his wife, Dagmar, give birth to Frank Alexander. The couple's first child was a girl named Marina. And then they, after Frank's birth, they had twin girls, Sabine and Petra. Now, I couldn't find a whole lot on their family life. Most reports just focus on their religious nuttery and the subsequent happenings that caused them to get onto this podcast. We also need to mention it doesn't appear that like Harold forced these beliefs on his family. The family eagerly drank from the swell of crazy. And I'm not saying this to mock anyone's beliefs, but but well, you'll see. You'll see. Just trust me. Now, once their happy little family was complete, Harold claimed to have received a message from God. And that message was that baby Frank was God's next prophet. Huzzah! This is a joyous event because now we have another Jesus walking the earth, right? Right? Oh, no, no, no. No to all of that. What this really meant was Frank was now in charge of the family. He was the unquestioned head of the household. He could not be challenged in any way, and he could commit no sins as a baby. Look, I, and I feel like that doesn't describe... I'm not stressing this enough, okay? They had to follow this baby's commands, all right? He was their king, and they had to act like it. 
everything in exaggeration with this family, okay? There, there were some reports that claimed the family would sit in a circle around Frank and bow on their knees while reciting over and over again, you are a prophet, you are a prophet. Really healthy, right? Kids need to be unconditionally praised and never corrected. If you have kids, you know how extremely wrong that is. I mean, I swear if I give one of our boys the power to pick dinner, suddenly we're living in the Stanford prison experiment. I cannot imagine what life would be like living under a de facto child king. I mean, what do you do when he's a toddler and he decides that for a month straight he wants hot dogs and orange popsicles for dinner? And you can't say no. Do you eat hot dogs and orange popsicles too? I mean, I guess you'd have to. All right, well, you know, Frank grows up and he's a boy. And when he hits his teenage years, what happens to teenage boys? Suddenly everything is a source of arousal, right? You know, I mean, just leaving a pair of oranges touching each other on the kitchen counter may be enough to get some kids going. So now you put this teenager as a king of a household where his mother and three sisters live. Yeah. Look, I'm sorry. I didn't write this story. I'm just reporting on it. So, you know, Frank made this decision in all his great wisdom that he was blessed with, allegedly, that he couldn't, he couldn't have some woman defile him. He was too pure for that. He needed, he could only be with the touch of a woman who understood his beliefs and his needs. And, you know, this, this was no longer a big sect by the time Frank came along. It, it was a, what, six-person religious group? So, um, yeah. He eventually began directing the sexual activity of all members of the house, including when mommy and daddy could have relations. Then he started commanding daddy to sleep with sisters. Mommy had to sleep with others in the house. We're just going to skip over the rest of that, okay? Now, word about these activities kind of began to spread because they didn't see anything wrong with it, especially the youngest, the twins. When they were at school, you know, they would just chit-chat about their day, and that was normal for them. Um, and, you know, the, the Alexander family didn't really try to hide how they worshipped. They didn't draw the curtains closed when all this was going on. So neighbors got wind of what was happening, and the more they heard it, the more they became concerned, the more they began to realize that this wasn't just a rumor that there may be something to it. So they go to the police. Police were soon dispatched to investigate these rumors. Obviously, this sounds like a pretty bad, abusive situation. And so they do essentially a welfare check. And when they get to the house and they talk to the family, the family doesn't really deny anything. I mean, again, they wore their beliefs on their sleeve. So German officials decided, we, we need to open up a formal investigation into this. this. This can't be going on. Well, shockingly, at this point, Frank gets a message from God that maybe it's time to move. And some think it was with the advice of Harold. Um, so they left Germany, 
and headed to the Canary Islands. Their official reason for moving within the family was, look, Satan's clearly got in control of the police force. He's operating to get us. We don't stand a chance. Let's get out of Dodge so he can continue to be the good and virtuous people we are, I guess, being all naked in the household. Uh, now, the Canary Islands, if you don't know, they're off the west coast of Africa. They're part of Spain. Another geography lesson for y'all. You're welcome. And so since they had left, you know, the jurisdiction of Germany, that investigation ended and it wasn't really followed up on by Spanish authorities. Now, moving to the Canary Islands is a little bit of an interesting choice because... The Canary Islands are like a Catholic stronghold. And like, I think the survey I saw was from 2020, 77% of the population identify as Roman Catholic. And like missionaries from the Roman Catholic Church have been singing their song in the Canary Islands since the mid 1300s. And they were the only game in town other than the native religious beliefs until the late 1800s. And yes, over the decades, other denominations have kind of gotten a foothold there and slowly started growing, but it's been clearly a Catholic-dominated country. I couldn't find the numbers for the 1960s, but you have to assume it was not less than 77%, and it was probably somewhere in the 80% range. So uh, now, as far as I know, at no point has Frank ever been named like the patron saint of these islands. So I don't think the Alexander family's practices would have really fit in very well with what their neighbors did. But regardless, this is where Frank said he wanted to be. So there they be. Despite Frank being the second coming, the family still needed money to do things like, you know, buy food, and pay rent. I mean, it's not like Frank could take a couple loaves of bread and a few fish and feed the multitudes of his family, right? I mean, you'd have to be someone like Jesus to... Oh, um, okay. Well, maybe Frank just didn't want to perform these kinds of miracles. You know, he, he was awfully busy scheduling all these ancestral orgies all the time. Uh, regardless, regardless, let's not focus on that. You know, to support the family, everybody got modest jobs other than Frank, because, you know, he's Frank. He's the king. He doesn't need to work. Harold got a job as a shipping clerk while his mama and his sisters got jobs basically as maids or domestic servants for wealthier families around the islands. They were... Known as good neighbors, by and large, except they had this really annoying habit of um, playing the organ really loud and really late into the night. And the organ was played so that the family could sing songs of praise, not to God, not to Jesus, but to Frank. It wasn't bad enough that you know, this became a sitcomish type situation, but everybody knew the Alexander family owned an organ. Let's let's just put it that way. 
Now, the neighbor's opinion of the Alexander family would shift pretty dramatically not long after they arrived in the Canary Islands. So on the evening of December 22nd, 1970, Harold and Frank knocked on the door of the house to Dr. Walter Trinkler. When the good doctor answered, he saw these two men standing there, and they were covered in dirt. They had obviously been working hard, and Harold said he needed to speak with his daughter, Sabine. When Sabine came to the door, Harold excitedly reported that Frank had proclaimed that the devil had gotten into her mother and sisters, and they had killed him. In fact, let me quote here. Sabine, dear, Harold's reported as saying, we want you to know that Frank and I have just finished killing your mother and your sisters. That, that's how he said it, to Sabine, in front of the doctor. Well, um, the doctor kind of was shocked, to put it mildly. He froze. Uh, probably his blood froze, because he realized it was not dirt covering these people's clothes. It was blood covering their clothes. How did Sabine react, you ask? Well... She grabbed her papa's hand, nuzzled her face into it, and said, I'm sure you've done what you thought was necessary. So at that moment, Harold realized the good doctor was witnessing this tender family moment, and he turned to the doctor and said with a smile, Ah, you've overheard. We've killed my wife and other daughters. It was the hour of killing. The doctor couldn't really hide his fear and shock, but it didn't really seem to bother the Alexander family, at least those who were left standing. The doctor then excused himself and went and called the police. Authorities arrived quickly and took the men into custody. The doctor said later that he was actually more scared of the attitude and how the family was carrying themselves when presenting this news than he was with the actual news itself. They, I mean, they were not secretive or cautious in the least. They were acting like they were announcing they had bought a new hat. It was just so matter of the fact. All right, so police get to the crime scene and instantly they're thrust into this horrific scene of carnage. The place was, first of all, a total wreck. All the dishes, all the glasses, they had been smashed, okay? Important documents like birth certificates and passports, for some reason, had been shredded into itty-bitty pieces. On top of this, maybe this, this, maybe I buried the lead here. The apartment walls were just covered in blood. There's, there's no, you know, this, these murders were not some sort of neat surgical act. Um, it was awful. It was horrible. The women's bodies had been absolutely mutilated. The, their breasts and private parts of all three women, mama and two daughters, had been carved off and nailed to the walls, as you do, I guess. The oldest daughter there had been disemboweled as well. The wife, Dagmar, had her heart removed, and it was hung like a trophy over the marital bed by several cords that had been kind of nailed into the wall. Um, the scene was so awful that even the most hardened officers that responded couldn't be in there for a few minutes without losing their lunch. Obviously, the two men were taken downtown and immediately interrogated. 
and neither denied responsibility. They were proud. Frank reportedly stated in part, quote, I saw that mother was looking at me and I had the feeling that it was not permitted for her to look at me in this manner. Okay. So that caused Frank to just start viciously beating his mother. Viciously, mercilessly, whatever adjective you want to throw in there. Frank said he had to do it. Uh, he had seen the eyes of the devil and his mother less than 48 hours before the killings. And as, yeah, th this, this is where we really turn into crazy land, okay? As Frank begins his assault and he's beating his mother, Harold's response, does he go help his wife? No. Does he go help Frank commit these murders? No, doesn't do that either. No, Harold goes to the family organ and starts playing it and starts singing songs of praise. Just imagine that scene. Frank bludgeoning these women to death while Harold is on the organ just having a good old time. Yeah, uh, so, okay. Frank finally finishes the deed. At that point, he starts cutting into his mother. Harold comes over and helps at that point. And uh, Harold told the police that they were removing the offensive part of the women. Interestingly, during these interviews, he never referred to his son by name. He always called him the prophet or the messiah. And a uh, quick reminder here, in case you've forgotten. Frank was born in 1954. This takes place in 1970. Frank's only 16. At the age of 16, he carries out these murders. Now, another shocking aspect of this case, because we haven't had enough shockingness. This had been planned by the entire family. Not when or how necessarily, but they all knew that there'd be a time where there was going to be an hour of killing and whatever women were around in the house were going to get dead. Women all knew they were being selected for sacrifice and didn't object. Neither Frank nor Harold expressed any regret or remorse. In fact, they claimed that their beliefs demanded that the women be purified by death. And because of their actions, they told police, their beloved female family members were now enjoying the great pleasures of heaven because they had been purified. Hence all the need for organ music and the celebratory tone. Police decided that, you know, all right, well, first of all, we got to arrest these, these guys, get them off the streets. We're going to charge them with murder. And we're going to let him see a psychiatrist. It didn't take much evaluation before the good doctors determined that Frank and Harold were not well, certainly not well enough to stand trial. Several hearings were held regarding this matter. Reporters noted that Frank just, he lacked the ability to sit still. He was fidgeting like a toddler and he kept making these bizarre and threatening facials or faces at, at, Either the judge or the police or the reporters or just the gallery in general. Now, Harold was officially diagnosed as being schizophrenic, but my research suggested no formal diagnosis was ever given for Frank 
other than kind of, you know, look at him. Look, look, look what he did. He's no, he, he is, he's what we in the medical community, we would call cray cray. Um, they were both committed to an asylum and for life. Like they were going to live in this hospital for life. And all the reports that trickled out said every form of treatment that they tried, it did nothing. It, not that, you know, these two were gone. All right. Now the forensic reports are a little bit interesting, I guess, but not surprising. Um, none of the three women put up any sort of a fight. There was no defensive wounds. So either Frank jumped them or they just submitted to their beating. With Mama, you could argue either way. But after that scuffle, after the organ music, the twin girls would have known what's coming. So I think we can safely say they accepted their fate and put up no resistance. There's some dispute about the weapon that Frank used. I am in the camp that believes he used a hammer on his mother. And then what is allegedly in the medical examiner's report, other masonry items were used to kill his sisters. It's not any more specific than that. But if you do your own research and you look, there's multiple sources that say Frank did this with a coat hanger. Now, the boy's crazy, and he's probably got crazy strength because of that. I just have a hard time believing that you could knock somebody out with the coat hanger before it broke. You don't necessarily have to kill him if you're going to do this ritual sacrifice. You just need to incapacitate him. It'd be a lot easier if you killed him, probably a lot more humane. Uh, when they got around to slicing up the bodies... That was done by using razor blades and pruning shears. Delightful. Now, here's a really, really, really fun fact. And I know I fed you all a lot and you're like, Brad, come on, we can only have so much fun. There are reports that in the mid-90s, Frank and Harold were granted a furlough from the asylum for a weekend and they never returned. Like, this is legitimately reported in a Spanish newspaper. Some have claimed to have seen one or both of them in Germany, but they've never been caught. They've never been identified. And officially, they are considered residents of the asylum. Like, the governments are just like, oh, yeah, we still got them. Yeah, no, don't don't worry about that. Everything's cool. These, these two crazy, dangerous, stabby people are still locked up. All right, now, we, we've covered a lot of the family, but we've kind of overlooked a loose thread here. What about Sabine? Well, she wasn't arrested or charged with anything because she didn't do anything. She just happened to be working the night these murders went down. Uh, she obviously was not well herself, but rather than commit her to some sort of state hospital, she was sent to a convent where she was going to work with the nuns with the hope kind of being that maybe being in a more normal environment 
might help her adjust and become more human-like. But um, we don't really know what happened. After she was sent there, she kind of fell off the face of the earth. We don't know if she changed her name. We don't know if she's still living there in secret. We just don't know. She's a big old mystery. So every member of the Alexander family that survived, we have no idea where they are. Isn't that wonderful? So that was a fun little journey we went on today, wasn't it? Yeah. Almost something of a horror movie or a thriller script. That, that's what it felt like reading this. Um, you know, again, thanks, I guess, to listener Misty for such a horrific suggestion. I particularly love how we have this cliffhanger ending. That means we could get the Alexander Family Massacre Part 2. I mean, again, this is straight from Hollywood, but it's not. This was a really frustrating case to research. Um, as you noted throughout the tale, there's so much conflicting information out there. And I presented what I feel the true story to be, what makes the most sense to me based on the amount of time I had available to research this case. But any of the variables I mentioned could be the truth as well. Um, so, you know, it's kind of a, Choose your own horrific crime adventure. You, you put the pieces together wherever you want. Now, the Alexander family is often referred to as the Alexander cult. I can't really argue with that description. I mean, they didn't actively try recruiting anybody into their ranks. But uh, yeah, you, you definitely have the, the one dominating personality and everybody else who's basically given over control of their life to that personality. They regardless of how you want to describe it, I think we can all agree they were living in a different world than you and I. And they were not going to abandon it. If Sabine's reaction to learning that her mother and two sisters had just been killed by her father and by her brother don't sell you on this idea, I don't really know what else to say. Now, um... You know, part of what I sell this podcast as is, you know, we do some legal analysis and there's not really a ton of analysis to be done in this case because it's just a whole bunch of crazy thrown into a blender and you see what comes out, you know. But I do I do want to touch on, you know, at least here in the United States, we have our First Amendment to the Constitution that protects a lot of our, you know, basic rights. Religion, press, speech, assembly, all that. So it's, it always, whenever you have a crime that's committed in the name of religion, it's always interesting to me to examine that crime through the lens of the First Amendment. Now, obviously, it does not apply here. The, these are German citizens who committed this crime in Spain. The U.S. has nothing to do with any of it, but just as an academical exercise. And in an effort to help folks understand uh, religious freedoms in America a little bit better, I thought I'd just go through it real quick. So, you know, the right to practice your religion in the United States is a fundamental right. But there have been instances where this fundamental right has crossed over into criminal land. Most often when it comes to 
religious organizations using um, drugs of some sort, controlled substances. So what the way the courts have handled this is basically if you're in the situation, you know, you say you start your own cult. Here's good old Brad giving legal advice when you shouldn't be, right? Say you want to start your own cult, and a big tenet of that is we're going to smoke as much pot as possible. All right, well, first of all, you have to be able to convince the court that the smoking of pot here is truly a sincere religious activity. And you don't do that just through arguments. You need to be able to provide some evidence and support, you know, either scriptures, writings, what have you ancient practices, things like that, okay? Now, if you can convince the trial court that, you know, what you're doing is a sincere religious activity, that puts the burden on the government to show that it has some compelling interest that requires your religious activity to cease. And that's a pretty big standard in the world of law you have to basically show that we've got to stop this particular religious practice because it's impacting the health or safety of the community. You know, like, I guess if your, your cult decided that you wanted to hulk out, so you get some gamma radiation and start spreading it everywhere. Yeah. They could probably come in and shut you down for that. Um, that, you know, for example, there was a case about 20 years ago that the U.S. Supreme Court heard where you had this, I don't know the right way to describe it, and, and if it comes out wrong, I don't mean to be offensive, but it was a, it was kind of a, as I understood it, a mash of Christianity and some indigen, indigenous Brazilian native religious ideas. And it was a you know, sect or organization, whatever the proper term is, that had been operating for a while in Brazil. And, you know, of course, we're a very mobile society now. So some of the membership had moved to California. Well, one of the practices they have involves the use of DMT, which is a hallucinogenic. And it's very important to them because they believe it gets you closer to God when you have these hallucinations. And they have a scriptural basis for it, plus they have this history of the indigenous use of this product to do the same thing. Well, the government saw that they were shipping in just gallons of this DMT stuff and stopped it. They seized the shipments, and the church sued. So this actually wasn't a criminal case. It was a civil case where the standard would actually be lower because when you're trying to criminally prosecute someone for their religious practices, you're, you're talking about a pole vault of a jump that you've got to make on the civil side. It's more of a high jump. If that makes a look of sense, it's a horrible analogy, but we're going to roll with it. So that, that's what they showed to the trial court, that, look, we've been doing this for years. Here's our scriptural basis for it. And we do view this as very, very important in our worship. The government acknowledged that, yes, this is a sincere religious practice, but 
we do need to step in and stop it because a nothing in the first amendment was intended to allow people to break criminal laws and b we need to be able to ensure that minors who are in these in this church are not being harmed by ingesting the DMT and there's really no one involved in the church who's a pharmacist or a doctor or would otherwise be capable of ensuring that the dosages being given are at a safe level. It's a reasonable argument by the government, but ultimately the U.S. Supreme Court said, yeah, but this is their religious beliefs. This is what they've been doing. You can't stop them from doing it. Um, you know, on the other side, you have seen the government be successful in making the snake handling religion kind of illegal. And they took the same approach in that argument is, look, these, these churches are collecting de deadly rattlesnakes, copperheads, other things like that. They're being handled by people who have no training in how to handle them other than having grown up in this church. And the snakes are passed from person to person, you know, from man to woman to child. And that's just, and on top of that, if someone is bitten, they view that as a test of faith, meaning you don't go get medical help if you've been bitten. You just try to survive and you can't subject a five-year-old to that. And when they were, when these churches were faced with these arguments, they said, yeah, but this is a demonstration of our faith. You can't stand between us and how we choose to show God that we have faith in him. But they couldn't, the scriptures they pointed to were not overly compelling and they couldn't demonstrate a historical record of this being done outside of these little churches that would spring up mostly in the Appalachian mountains. And so because of that, state handling churches are essentially not legal anymore. They can be, you know, I mean, if they hired somebody who was there, who knew how to handle snakes, had been certified in it, and presumably if they had like an EMT or anti-venom or something, maybe that would be enough to get around it. But that kind of also goes against what the whole purpose of doing the snake handling is that an average person could pick up the snake, not be harmed by it because God's going to protect them. And even if they're bitten, God's going to heal them. Well, you throw an EMT and licensed snake handlers in there, you're, you're removing that essence of faith. But uh, you know, the court basically said this is not a necessary part of your religious expression based on what you've argued. So just know that if you see a snake handling church, they're probably operating illegally. I hope you never see one. So under this foundation of U.S. law, again, just U.S. law, I'm not trying to say this is how it works in Germany or Spain. Um, I don't think you could successfully argue that, you know, I need to murder my mom or my sister or my daughters to make God happy. You know, I, I don't, I don't think there's, again, I'm not a scholar of the Bible and this was a Christian sect. I'm not a scholar of the Bible. I'm familiar with it. I've read it. I've studied it a little. 
I don't remember a part in there that says, oh, you got to kill all the women because, man, the devil is just running rampant through them. Maybe, you know, that part wasn't in my particular Bible, but yeah. Uh, essentially, you know, you're not going to win. And I bring this up because a lot of people have this misconception that when it says you have, you know, the freedom of speech or, you know, freedom of religion, that it's an absolute untouchable, no one can do anything about it sort of right. Uh, it's not true. There's exceptions. I mean, your your rights can be restricted. You know, the, the classic freedom of speech one is you can't yell fire in a crowded movie theater because the risk of harm that you're creating in the stampede that would ensue outweighs your right to yell fire. You know, what benefit are you getting versus what hazards are you creating? So that's all I can really say as a lawyer. Um, at the end of the day, I think the only analysis we really needed to do is we all know these folks were nuttier than squirrel poop. And the world's probably better off with them in jail or a hospital or wherever they are now. I do hope that Sabine was able to recover from this. Um, she was a victim here. And, you know, to some degree, you can argue that Frank was a victim because of how he was raised. But he's clearly just too far gone. Uh, I, there is a famous picture of him during one of these competency hearings that we're going to post on social media. And if you know anything about this case, you've seen it before. And you can just look at Frank and say, oh, my God, uh, he probably needs to be killed. Seriously, it's it's horror movie quality stuff. So, all right, that's our story. Uh, palate cleansing time. All right, now, normally we try to say, you know, on brand here, we try to, you know, keep the theme going. No, no, we're not doing that this week. I don't know what kind of jokes would be introduced if I allowed that. So uh, here's what we've got, okay? Did you hear about the fire in the shoe factory? It, it was really sad. There was over a thousand souls lost. And, and even worse, police said it was intentionally set by a couple of heels. So there you go. That, that, mm. It's like eating a lemon, right? You know, it's fruit. It's supposed to be good for you, but uh, it's just so hard to swallow. It's so sour. All right, that's it. We are done. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I hope the ads weren't too painful to sit through. I appreciate all of y'all. Now go get back to your family and your loved ones. And please don't start playing the organ while trying to do, you know, anything really. Playing the organ while you're doing anything instantly makes it more sinister. And I don't know why, but that's my advice for you this week. I will see you kids next Tuesday. Y'all be good until then. Brad out. You survived another episode of Killing Missing Hidden, the podcast about bad things. Join us next time for another true and thrilling story.